Hello, everyone. This is B-Sides, the midweek rant, reflection on the text that we're going through on Sundays. Another way to think of it, it's the between Sunday snack. So here we're going to snack a little bit on Mark chapter one, as next week we go into Mark chapters two through three, and we see some of the conflict that Jesus faces. But yeah, we started a new series, uh, Mark. We're going to look at the way of Jesus. And the way is not just a direction we go, but it's a journey. And it's, um, it's the way we go on the way that matters as well. So it's not just the road, but it's about the traveler on the road and how the traveler walks. And so Jesus, through the Gospel Mark, is going to show us how to walk his way. Now, of course, way is very important. And usually when we hear Jesus as the way, we think of John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Notice, though, that he says way first and then truth. We often like to think of Jesus as the truth before the way, but he talks about walking with him as the first thing. And then we learn the truth of him as we walk with him. And so way and truth gives us life. That's how we experience the life of Christ. We walk with him on the way, we learn of his truth, and we get to experience his life. Now, recall that Mark opens up by citing Isaiah right away. And so we see he's picking up on Isaiah's way through the wilderness, and Jesus is the answer to that path. And so now we get our actual guide, the servant, who's going to take us along the way. So Mark is going to show us Jesus inviting people on the way in the first eight chapters, and then uh, for seven chapters, then chapters eight, nine, and ten. He's going to teach us about the way with three lessons And that's going to be while he's on the way to Jerusalem. And then in chapters 11 through 16, we will see him in Jerusalem where he models what he's invited people on, what he's taught us about. And that is he becomes a living parable of the way. So the way is going to take us to the cross and then to resurrection. This is true life. How do we conduct ourselves on this way? That is what Mark seems to be most interested in by opening his gospel quite immediately with the way from Isaiah. Now, I want to share some background about Mark. Uh, we'll look at, we talked about Jesus's miracles as signs pointing to the way. We'll look at how that is actually based in Isaiah. Didn't have time for that in the sermon. And then we'll actually talk very, a very little bit about politics. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh, nothing that I'm going to no opinion or side this or side that, but just a very biblical view of what kingdom politics look like. So as a background to Mark, I would like to read to you, because I always enjoy these little intros, what Eugene Peterson says about the gospel of Mark. He has a little intro to each book of the Bible, and I always enjoy them. They're short, and they really give you a good theme. Uh, he's emphasizing the fact that Mark begins his gospel in a rush, and then he uses this word immediately throughout his gospel. So, Peterson says, Mark wastes no time in getting down to business. A single sentence introduction, and not a digression to be found from beginning to end. 
An event has taken place that radically changes the way we look at and experience the world, and he can't wait to tell us about it. There's an air of breathless excitement in nearly every sentence he writes. The sooner we get the message, the better off we'll be, for the message is good, incredibly good. God is here, and he's on our side. The bare announcement that God exists doesn't particularly qualify as news. Most people in most centuries have believed in the existence of God or gods. It may well be, in fact, that human beings in aggregate and through the centuries have given more attention and concern to divinity than to all their other concerns put together. Food, housing, clothing, pleasure, work, family, whatever. But that God is here right now and on our side actively seeking to help us in the way we most need help, this qualifies as news. For common as belief in God is, there is also an enormous amount of guesswork and gossip surrounding the subject, which results in runaway superstition, anxiety, and exploitation. So Mark, understandably, is in a hurry to tell us what happened in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The event that reveals the truth of God to us so that we can live in reality and not illusion. He doesn't want us to waste a minute of these precious lives of ours ignorant of this most practical of all matters, that God is passionate to save us. The breathlessness of Mark's gospel. And so, you saw in chapter 1, he just begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it goes right into the way in Isaiah, as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. Right away. It even goes right over the birth stories, like Matthew and Luke have, and just right to the baptism, because that's where the way begins. Jesus emerges out of the water, paving the way through the wilderness, much like the parting of the Red Sea, when God paves a way for his people through the wilderness in the Exodus. Jesus is there, and he's now leading us. And so we're going to see it take us all the way to Jerusalem, which, in a grander scale, the way is taking us all the way to the new Jerusalem as well. So here in Mark, we have a microcosm of the great journey that we are all on. And the Jesus journey, as we see him walking it, is a parable for us to live in and imitate. All right. So, the way of Jesus. So Mark. Mark is the author. We don't know um, a lot about um, Mark himself. Uh, like some of the disciples, we know they ran churches and stuff. We know that Mark was an assistant to Peter. Peter discipled Mark. And that Mark perhaps was part of a wealthy family who may have owned property in the Garden of Gethsemane. That when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was actually staying in Mark's backyard. Now, Mark at the time was believed to have been a young boy. And in fact, in uh, the Garden episode, when Jesus is arrested, there's this quite humorous and random moment where a young boy flees. And it's believed that that actually might be Mark himself. So this is in Mark 14, verse 51. It says, And a young man followed him, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. 
but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That may be Mark inserting himself in the narrative, that he was an eyewitness to parts of the story of Jesus. But also, Mark was, if he was indeed from a wealthy family, he was educated, which means he knew how to write, which is something that Peter did not know how to do as a fisherman. So it is therefore surmised that since Peter and Mark worked closely together, that the gospel of Mark is actually Peter's gospel written through Mark's craftsmanship. And that might make a lot of sense when you think about it, because in the gospel of Mark, you have at the resurrection scene, after Peter's denial of Jesus three times, the resurrection scene uh, singles out Peter, that this is good news for Peter and the disciples. Says the angel tells him um, in Mark 16 verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. And then notice that it, later in the gospel, when Jesus is walking on the water, in Matthew's gospel, Peter asks, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And Peter does, and he walks on water, then he sinks. But in Mark's gospel, that doesn't happen. Jesus just gets on the boat. And that may be Peter wanting to not have that story of himself in the gospel. Why? Perhaps because Peter was sensitive to the fact that the church was already perhaps getting into apostle worship or admiring their leaders too much. And Peter wanted to tone that down because if Jesus is the way, and if he's our leader and our servant on the way, Peter wants the church's attention on Jesus, not on him or any of the other disciples. So along with that thought process is that the disciples get absolutely zero positive press time. Every instance of the disciples in the Gospels is either neutral or negative. They do not a single thing properly. This is such a stark, astonishing observation that many um, of the more literary scholars who look at Mark from a literary perspective uh, question if the disciples are actually supposed to be antagonists to Jesus in the story. Now, that might sound crazy because you're like, what? The disciples aren't evil. And of course, they're not evil. That's not the point. The point, though, is that they are in the story set up as roadblocks to the way of Jesus. Or to put it another way, as Peter and Mark are showing us the way of Jesus, they are inserting the disciples as examples of the ways not to go. You'll see that later, especially when Peter tells Jesus he can't go to the cross and he's rebuked. Um, and then James and John try to um, vie for power next to Jesus and his kingdom, and he also rebukes them there. Those are both two crucial texts in which Jesus is teaching the way. We'll get to those down the road. Um, but there's another reason why Peter may be trying to keep himself in the background and keeping the disciples out of the highlight reel. And that's because it's believed that Peter was in Rome at the time of writing around the 60s. And this was a very trying time for Christians in the city of Rome. Because on the throne was Nero. And Nero had a vendetta against Christians. Maybe not a vendetta, more like he saw them as scapegoats. And you probably know about the fires of Rome 
and how much of the city was burned. And Nero blamed Christians, which was a fairly easy thing to do, seeing that the Jewish, the largely Jewish and Christian quarters of Rome were left untouched. And of course, these are outsiders that none of the Romans understood. They denied the gods of Rome. So they were seen somewhat, uh, well, actually they were called atheists. <laughs> because they denied the gods of Rome and they were considered um, antisocial because they didn't participate in typical Roman activity. So the Jews in the, in the church uh, were very different in their way of life. So they became easy targets as minorities. And so they underwent some persecution. Now it's not entirely clear what kind of persecution, but it's widely believed that there was persecution to the death. Uh, we do know records of Nero burning Christians alive as human torches in his garden. And um, there are some suggestions of um, dying at the um, mouths of lions and um, and the trauma, too, of um, having to rat out or, or admit that you knew where other Christians were at the point of torture. Uh, there's some there's some implications of that as well. And so Peter's writing at a time when the church needs their focus on Jesus, the one who courageously walked the way, even when the cross was in the midst of the way. So he's calling on a suffering church to say, look, this is a way of life, yes, but it's also a way of life that may ask for your life. It may ask for the ultimate loyalty so keep your eyes not on the apostles, not on your church leaders, but on Christ. He is our ultimate example. So in some ways, while we're looking at Mark as a parable about how to walk on the way with Jesus, um, it's also addressing the question, how do we move through suffering? Now, the way is suffering, so it, they go together. Because as we're going to see, the way of Jesus is about denying yourself. It's about taking up your cross. It's about going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Paul later writes, I've been crucified with Christ, and my old man is dead, and all those ways of describing that the Christian life is us going to the cross with Christ. For some of us, that will be a physical death, but for all of us, that will be every day a choice to become a servant, which is a form of dying, denying our rights and putting others as the most important people around us. So that is the way, and it will require some suffering, some letting go of our self-importance, some putting others first. And man, that gets really hard when there are people whom you don't think deserve it. But we have to remember we don't deserve it either. Now, interesting about Mark's gospel is that it is believed widely that it was the first gospel written. First of all, um, Matthew and Luke both copy an enormous amount of verses from Mark. And when I say copy, that makes some people get a little queasy. Um, what Mark, Matthew and Luke they don't want to reinvent the wheel. Mark wrote a masterpiece. So they're going to borrow Mark as a source, but then add their own sources, their own eyewitness material, because each gospel writer is trying to say something. We don't just have four, four 
records of the same story. Yes, they are records of the Jesus story, but each of these records are trying to tell us something that Jesus wants of us. And as we see in Mark, it's to be servants, deny ourselves, to walk on the way with Christ. So, um, so Mark likely writes first. Um, Matthew uh, basically takes his structure, but then inserts five lengthy sermons from Jesus to correspond with the Pentateuch, because Matthew was Jewish and he was writing to possibly to a largely Jewish audience. And then Luke, he adds in this whole travel episode where Jesus is going from Galilee to Jerusalem, and a lot of it is in Samaria. And in this travel episode, Jesus becomes a storyteller. There's a lot of parables in Luke that don't show up in the other Gospels. And Luke has a wealth, traveling with Paul around all the churches, Luke has a wealth of sources at his hands. So Luke has a very diverse Gospel. And then if you're wondering about John, well, John is just so different. Because John is writing at his old age, at the end of the century, 60 years after everything uh, he's had a lot of time to meditate on it, and John writes his gospel a lot like a meditation. It's as if it is a prayer. It not only contains prayers of Jesus in it, but it's as if the gospel itself is a meditation and prayer about Christ. And so John just comes with a totally different approach. But Mark is believed to be the first one writing in the 60s to a suffering church. Now, there's some other interesting indications here, and that is that in Mark's gospel, and only in Mark's gospel, we actually have what is perhaps the the actual voice of Jesus. What do I mean? Well, Jesus is in Israel. We think of the Jews as speaking Hebrew, and they did know some Hebrew, of course, but actually at the time they were speaking Aramaic. That was in part because of their exile and their return to the land. But Jesus, it's believed, spoke in Aramaic. The Jews, of course, read their Hebrew scriptures and did their religious services in Hebrew. And then the larger world spoke Greek, and then the Roman government used Latin. So you've got four languages going on. Um, so the Gospels are writing in Greek. So they're actually already translating the words of Jesus to the Greek audience, and then we have an English translation of that Greek. So we're actually two translations removed. But in the Gospel of Mark, you have some instances where you have no Greek and you have Aramaic. And that, it's believed, is where they wanted to preserve the actual wording, not just a summary of what Jesus said, but the actual words, as if Peter, as he's telling Mark what to write, can actually recall the intonation of Jesus's voice. Not just, I remember him saying, but I remember hearing the vibrato of his voice when he said this. So here are some of the examples. In Mark chapter 5, verse 41 Jesus is taking the girl, remember the 12-year-old girl who had died, it says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, that's the Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. So there Peter and Mark are translating their Aramaic into Greek. There's another one in chapter 7, verse 34. This is where Jesus heals a deaf man. And it says, and looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to the deaf man, Ephatha, that is, now Mark and Peter are translating for us, that is, be opened. So there you have the Aramaic, Ephatha. And then, of course, and this one we know a lot better, but the one uh, where Jesus is on the cross 
And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark has it in chapter 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. Now, if Peter's recalling his actual words, the actual voice, the actual audible sound of Jesus's speaking in these verses, can you imagine what it would have been like to hear his voice to someone he's bringing back to life, to someone who is deaf and has never heard, or the agony of feeling abandoned by his father on the cross? So here in Mark, the first gospel, written only 30 years after these words were spoken, they're still ringing in Peter's ears. And then last background information on Mark's gospel is that it's believed this book was written to be performed. Now, there is a book called Mark as Story, and the book goes into the literature of this um, gospel and how it's put together and the literary aspects. It's really interesting. For us, that's, that's the kind of thing I like. So I know most of you listening are probably not ever going to pick that up. But I really enjoy the way it analyzes the story and what's going on in the characters and the places. So some of my teaching of Mark will draw largely on that. But um, one of the things that they propose in the book is that the Gospel of Mark was written to basically as a script to be performed. Now that might sound odd at first, but consider in the Roman culture, only about five at best, 10% of the empire, the numbers are all different, but no one has over 10%. Under 10% of the Roman empire could read or write. So if you're trying to make this for the church, which is usually a lot of poor people who definitely can't read or write, if you're trying to make this for the church, you're not making it to be read, you're making it to be heard. Now, when would it be heard? Well, the Gospel of Mark would have been heard at their weekly dinner gatherings. And someone who was trained in the Gospel, in other words, who who could read it and knew this Gospel by memory, which, by the way, was not an odd thing in those days. People had much better memories because their phones weren't half of their brains. <laughs> they actually had to memorize things. Uh, it was an oral society, so they were trained that way. Their brains were just functioning differently. Um, someone would have the gospel memorized and wouldn't just simply recite it. I mean, we don't we don't understand how oration works as well as the ancients did. Um, or our performances, because our performances are basically concerts or they're sporting events or every man's performance. It's the television. So we don't actually get to interact with being performers ourselves very often. But the performer would memorize the gospel, but then have techniques in how to share it. And he'd have facial expressions and have a dynamic range of voice. And he would actually act out some of the scenes. And so it would get the entire dinner, the early church gatherings there in the homes, would be captivated by this retelling of the story of Jesus as scripted by Mark. And that this is the way it was meant to be communicated. Another indication of this is that the gospel to be read out loud is about two hours, which even by American standards is about the maximum attention span of people. Although I'm pretty certain that our attention span is shrinking. But back then, a two-hour performance would have been nothing. What else did they have to do? That's what they did. The church would sit around the table and talk to each other. And what a treat to have someone with the gospel of Mark, the first 
narrated story of the life of their Savior and someone performing it. What a church service that would have been. What a dinner fellowship that would have been. Um, so it's about the length. It's the shortest of the Gospels. And so it's therefore about the length of a performance. And then, um, oh, I'm not finding it right now, but there's a there's a part where it seems like Mark is actually speaking to the narrator in the text. Like he's giving instructions. Uh, let me see if I can find that real quick. It's where Jesus is talking about... Um, the um there it is uh it's mark 13 verse 14 jesus is speaking about the abomination of desolation he says but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be then in parentheses let the reader understand then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains now i don't have a lot of the details in front of me but i, I know that they were saying that let the reader understand was Mark's comment to the performer to pay attention at this point. Like there's a part here in the text that you should understand what you're communicating here. So there's like a cue for how to perform that part. Um, I didn't take the time. I'm sorry. I didn't take the time to uncover the specifics there, but I remember that if you want to, you can pick it up. Mark's story. It's a fantastic book. If you like some deeper reading. Okay. That's the background to Mark. Now, we looked at Jesus launching the way in Mark chapter 1, and we talked about his miracles as being signs that you're on the right way. Now, when we make a journey, you can possibly be going the wrong way. One of the ways to know that is to look at the signs. Not only should the, if you're wanting to go east, should you be on the 10 east instead of the 10 west, but look at the signs that are coming up. If you're heading toward LA from our position, you're going the wrong way. If you're headed toward Phoenix, you're going the right way. And as you near your destination, you should see the name of your destination showing up with greater and greater frequency. The signs tell you you're headed on the right way. That's how we see the miracles that Jesus is performing in the Gospel of Mark. He's inviting people on the way, and then he's giving them proof. If you're following me, you're headed in the right direction. What direction? the new heavens and new earth, where miracles like this are not unusual disturbances to the natural order. Rather, this is the way things are supposed to be. And everything around this miracle is actually a disturbance to God's order. Did you catch that? Life as we know it is not the way God intended it. It is a disturbance of God's order. A miracle, therefore, is the eruption of God's order in the midst of this present age. So think of miracles as the norm in God's kingdom. That's the new heavens and new earth. So the little miracles are little flashes, like, right? They're like little signs that you pass on the way to say, yep, you're getting closer. You're going the right way. Now, this idea... Um, is confirmed in Isaiah chapter 35. You might remember this from our study in Isaiah. This was be even before he launched into the way in chapter 40. Um, we saw this example, this little hint of the coming way in Isaiah 35. And there he talks about the changes. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's worth getting into your imagination as we go through the Jesus story. So here you go, Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. 
The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an ancient heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then, pay attention here, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So you know that this this conversion of the created world, this, this heaven and earth are coming together when you start to see people and places being restored. Then Isaiah goes on to say it very specifically. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isn't that great? And you know what I just noticed was we talked about how Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and it mentioned that he was with the wild beasts, which is not just a interesting footnote about the area he was in. The wild beasts I take to mean like he was being confronted with Satan, as we see in Matthew Mark or Matthew and Luke. He was being confronted with Satan with alternate ways to bring heaven and earth together again. Don't do the cross. Don't do the way of Isaiah. Here's some alternate ways. And the alternate ways in the Bible are the ways of the beasts. Daniel talks about the beasts being empires that have dominated and tyrannized the people of God. Beasts trample over, they devour. And of course, in Revelation, there is the great beast that tramples and devours the earth. And so here we actually just saw in Isaiah 35, what will not be on the way? No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed will be found there. Isn't that great? The way of Jesus is so totally different than the ways of this world that you will not find those ways even touching this way. Only the redeemed are here. Friends, There is a ch this way is challenging because it's going to go against the society that we have saturated simply by living in it. And sometimes we're not aware that we've saturated it because we're like fish in water. We don't even know what water is. It's just the thing you live in. That's what society is for us sometimes. And the way is going to cut right against the grain and challenge us to say, are you really following the way of Jesus? Because this is the better path. Let's go, gang. Let's go.
So we want to look for the signs. Are there signs of healing? Now, I'm not saying literal miracles. Uh, God does do those, we believe today, but that's... <laughs> that's not going to be the best way to determine if you're on God's path. It's going to be, do you see the signs of new heaven and new earth coming? Or as Paul put it very simply, the signs of the Spirit's work in your life, he calls it fruit, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, uh, faithfulness and self-control. I missed one. Um, If you can figure that one out, extra credit to you. But those are the fruits of the Spirit. Those are some of the signs. If we don't see signs of Christ in our life, if we don't see us becoming more like him, if we don't see the world around us changing, the deserts and the wildernesses growing fruit, uh, if we don't see hurts getting healed within our own lives or within the lives of others, we have to wonder if we're actually walking the way of Jesus. So, Final segment, politics. <laughs> um, politics are divisive, so I didn't want to share any of this on Sunday. Just the mention of politics can divide people. And some of you are already cringing or rolling your eyes or tuning me out right now. <laughs> That's all right. Um, but what I wanted to do was to talk about third option politics or third party politics, maybe. <laughs> You don't even have to read the news to know the mess of politics today in our nation and how divided we are. But this, I wanted to point something out here in Mark, that there's actually a political option for Christians, and it is not blue or red. It is not Democrat or Republican. It is not so-called liberal or so-called conservative. It's none of those things. And I think it is wrong. I think it is wrong for the church to insist that one of the parties is God's party. In fact, it has to just be said, the Republican Party is not God's party. Now, I understand that for many of us, the Republican Party may stand for some values that are important to us, rightfully so. Just thinking of uh, a pro-life just as an option as or as an example. But you know what? The Democrats actually embody a lot of Christian values too. They generally embody more of a humanistic viewpoint, humanism, taking care of the dignity and worth of human beings. Um, hello? That's what Christ did. Christ would care about the poor. He would care about the immigrant. He would care about people, right? That's that is like Christ too. Now, understandably, in both parties, though, the elements that most reflect God are taken in a very secular direction, and they are a bit maybe distorted from what the Christian view would be. But we need to see that both parties actually have some Christian value to them. So it's not like there's one God party and then there's the devil party. But the way I hear people talk, that's often actually, whether you think this or not, that's what I hear. that's what I hear. And we need to understand that there's no one God party. And within our own fellowship, there are more than one, there's more than one party. You know, some people vote one way and some people vote another. Heaven forbid that we ever made one half of our nation feel like they don't belong to God because they vote differently than us. That is so 
wrong. I don't even know what Jesus would say to us if we presented that attitude. And maybe we don't mean to, but it can often come across that way. The evangelical church, it's no secret, votes Republican for the most part. That, this does not have to be. This does not have to, why, it's almost as if if you, well, okay, so I told you I wasn't going to rant on that too much. So, pause. Um, There's a third and better way. Mark opens his gospel with some strong political statements. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Those three words, gospel, Christ, Son of God. This is defying the emperor of the world, Caesar, who was known as the world's lord, the lord, the world's savior, the one bringing the Pax Romana, the peace and prosperity. There, It was often proclaimed, good news, that's the word gospel, same word, evangelion, good news, there's a new king. So I know I already shared some of this in the message, so this might be a bit redundant, but what I want to point out is that true followers of the way are not wearing red or blue. Yes, we vote, but we do not say the way is either red or blue. It's not Fox or CNN or whatever. It's the kingdom of God, which at the very outset, Mark intentionally pits against the kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of God and the way of Jesus is in almost every way the precise opposite of kingdom, of Caesar's kingdom. Caesar empowers himself by triumphing over other people. Jesus empowers himself by being killed at the hands of his enemies. Caesar had the sword. Jesus had the cross. Caesar taxed and oppressed. Jesus gave gifts and grace and healed and liberated. Everything about the way of Jesus and his kingdom, the politics are completely backwards from the politics of this world. And so, friends, the church should be known for a single politic. We shouldn't be known for being either left or right. We should be known for the kingdom of God. Of course, we will have people who vote left or right, and that's great. We should vote. It's it's a freedom we have, and we should do it. And it's fine that we have opinions, but remember that they are opinions. The only truth, the only politics that we should fight for is the kingdom of God. And that is not a triumphalistic call to crusade for the kingdom of God. Rather, that's a call to take the path and walk the way of Jesus. Yes, Christianity is political. We have a king. We're part of a kingdom. And that kingdom is not America. Be a good citizen of America. Yes, please. But we are not citizens of America as an eternal future. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and those are the politics we should be most concerned about. So as we walk the way with Jesus, we're going to see how to enact this in the civic realm. We're going to see how to enact this in life in general. 
This is what we should be known for, not the kingdom of the Democrats or the kingdom of the Republicans or the kingdom of America. We, the church, needs to be known for the kingdom of God, period. That is our priority, our primary identity. Everything else is periphery. All right. So off the hobby horse, um, if you need to email me, <laughs> Brandon McCulloch at CalvaryChapel.com. Uh, grace and gratitude to all of you. Um, I'm excited to go on this journey with you through the gospel of Mark. Thanks for listening.